Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about dogged persistence and forging forward in the face of resistance, both internal and external. And I've been thinking about maintaining optimism and hope while working to reach a goal that history and evidence determine is unlikely to be attained. My guest today is William H. Shaberg, a historian and author who reveals the incredible stories of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous in his new book, Writing the Big Book, The Creation of AA. Welcome, Mr. Shaberg, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you for the invitation, Ellie. I appreciate it. So 11 years of research. Um, you wrote yourself a big book. Uh, I was a little intimidated when I first got it. I was like, ooh, this thing is big. I better dive in quickly and, and was so excited that I did. It, it's incredible. Um, I, I'm wondering why did it feel so critical to you to conduct such in-depth research? Well, once I started on the story, I kind of got sucked into it. And one of the things that sucked me into it was the fact that there was just such a tremendous amount of documentation, primary documents from 1937, 1938, and 1939, the year the book was actually published, that from what I could tell, nobody else had ever paid critical attention to. Uh, And it wasn't just a couple of documents. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them in the Alcoholics Anonymous headquarters in New York City, the archive there. Um, up in Westchester in Bedford Hills, uh, Bill Wilson and Lois live there, and there's an archive at, at their home. Um, Brown University has a tremendous alcoholism collection. The Rockefellers were very involved with early AA, and the Rockefeller archive is just fabulous. And then the people out in Akron have done a good job of collecting a bunch of stuff. And I went to all those places, and each one of them uh, added a- another layer of complexity and uh, sometimes confusion to the story, confusion that I had to figure out. And were you looking for something specific that you believed was missing in other stories once you got going? Because there there are so many stories about it written by different people, and even a number that you mentioned in, in your book that Bill Wilson wrote that oftentimes didn't match up with other factual evidence that exists that you found. That was certainly the case. And, and really, that was, that was one of the driving factors in, in, in this entire process, um, Bill Wilson was just not a historian. You know, Bill Wilson was a man with a vision. He was on a mission to uh, get people sober all across the United States of America. And, uh, and when he told stories about early AA history, he wasn't looking for historical accuracy. He was looking for a story with a punch. So the stories that Bill told over and over and over again and even wrote uh, were frequently closer to parables and sometimes even myths than they were to a historical account. And as I got into the the, uh, the letters, for instance, that were written between the participants, there was a lot of letter writing in those days, no email. Uh, the letters that were written, uh, they uh, flew in the face of some of those stories that I had been hearing from friends in AA um, over the years. So uh, Linda Ferris Kurtz on the back of your book asks a wonderfully encompassing question. She says, how does a bunch of homeless alcoholics start a worldwide movement? And then your book is an astonishing uh, detailed answer as, as to how they do it. Let's start with just the cast of characters. Well, the major character is Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
the second person who gets mentioned almost all the time in a history of AA or, or the story about AA's founding is Dr. Bob Smith. Bill Wilson was in New York. Bob Smith was in Akron, Ohio. He was the, the first man that Bill Wilson actually got sober who stayed continuously sober. And uh, they're considered co-founders today. But one of the shocking things I found uh, as I went through the documents was that probably the second most important man was, what, certainly in terms of the writing of the big book, the second most important man was not Dr. Bob Smith. It was a man named Hank Parkhurst, who was uh, Bill Wilson's uh, right-hand man in New York. He was the first guy that Bill Wilson got sober in New York in 1935. And Hank and Bill uh, were were just tied deeply together into this project. And it was really Hank Parkhurst who pushed Bill Wilson over and over and over again to get this thing started and then to finally get it finished and bring it to press. I'm fond of saying, no Hank, no book. And and I really believe that's true. There certainly wouldn't have been a book called Alcoholics Anonymous published in April of 1939 if it wasn't for Hank Parkhurst. But unfortunately, Hank Parkhurst gets dropped out of the story Wilson mentions him a few times in his history book, uh, A.A. Comes of Age, that he wrote in the mid-50s, but just in passing. And, and the reason Hank gets dropped out of the story is he's, he's one of those uncomfortable facts. Uh, six months after the book was published, Hank was drunk and he never got sober again. Yeah, you refer to him as the forgotten man. And, um, and, and, and there's a number of other elements that get left out because of that, right? Because maybe, as you said, they don't fit in the parable or they don't fit in the sales pitch. Um, how does that sit with you after spending so much time? Like, where did you find resolution with that, with the other um, stories that are out there about AA and then and then the, the factual book that you create? Like, is there dissonance there? Is there an uncomfortableness that you had to settle with? Well, certainly it was something I had to make peace with, but it really didn't take me long to do that. The fact of the matter is that, as I said earlier, Bill Wilson was a visionary. He was a man on a mission trying to get people sober. And, and he was a salesman, you know, and a salesman, salesman needs to tell a good punchy story, something that's going to capture the drunk's opinion and hopefully offer him some hope, uh, maybe enough hope so they'll actually start trying to do what other people are doing to stay sober within Alcoholics Anonymous. So it, it just, I, I had no problem with the fact that, that, that Bill was morphing the facts to, to fit his sales pitch. I, I, th- I think that's a wonder. I think telling parables Telling, telling meaningful and punchy stories is exactly what he should have been doing. If he hadn't been doing that, I doubt AA would be around today. And he has to do both, right? He has to grab the drunks' attention and, and get them to sign on a change. And then he's also trying to, and we'll talk about this a bit later, but grab the Rockefellers' attention and other big philanthropy uh philanthropic donors in New York in um, the 1930s and get their attention as well. Um as I started reading through the book, I was like, okay, this is a Netflix miniseries, uh, page by page. It's like, I'm just saying, okay, episode, 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 I'm leaving on a cliffhanger. Um, maybe just, if you could, a little bit about um, the beginnings of Bill Wilson's story, because it really is, as I read, I was shaking my head again and again, thinking, here's this guy that is just... Um, full force forward against all odds and, and not giving up. Yeah, Bill was a really amazing man. Uh, and I have tremendous, tremendous admiration for him. I mean, he started single-handedly 
I believe he's responsible for starting one of the great spiritual movements of the 20th century. I can't think of anything in any other way to tell you the truth. Uh, Bill got sober in December of 1934. He'd been drinking heavily since uh, the First World War. Uh, some just just crazy stories about things that he did and things that happened to him. But he was crashed and burned pretty badly uh, throughout 1932, 1933, and into 1934. He made at least three trips to, uh, to, uh, to what today we would call Rehab Towns Hospital. And it was during his final uh, visit at Towns Hospital that he had what he later described as a white light experience, an experience of uh, a power greater than himself that washed over him and told him that everything was all right and he would be all right. And uh, he took that, that, that approach uh, ex- describing his own experiences to people for the first six months after he got sober and it really wasn't working for him. So he, he was advised by one of the doctors at the hospital to drop all this white light stuff and talk more about the medical psychological aspects which is what he did. And, and the first time he actually tried that, uh, he tried it on Dr. Bob Smith in Akron in June of 1935. And, and Bob actually heard the message and, uh, and grabbed onto it and stayed sober. And, um, and so then they start these groups of meetings, one in Akron and, and one in New York with, um, you know, anywhere from 10 to, to towards the end, they had that, I think like 40 people towards the end of those couple of years. Um, Describe that scene a bit, because I think scene is a really accurate word. Well, yeah, it, it, and, it, and it was a scene, and it was a very, very different scene from what goes on today in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. I mean, um, you know, when I tell uh, my friends in AA that in 1938 there was only two meetings in the world, one of them met in Brooklyn on Tuesday nights and the other one met in Akron on, on Wednesday nights, they just that's incomprehensible to them. Uh, I mean, in my little town of Fairfield, I don't even know how many AA meetings are listed in the AA schedule, but there's, there's a couple of dozen at least uh, every week. So the meetings, though, were, were very um, very much based early on. They were very much based on, on the Oxford group teachings. The Oxford group was a, something that a man named Frank Bookman uh, founded in 1921. They were basically uh, back to first century Christianity movement. They were trying to get away from all the dogmatic arguments that people had had over the years. They were trying to focus on uh, the great commandment found in John that uh, by this shall shall they know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And, And that was a really, really successful movement, especially within the Episcopal Church. Um, Sam Shoemaker, uh, who was the pastor of Calvary Episcopal Church in New York City, was the was the lead man in in in, uh, in the USA. So Wilson was very close to the heart and center of the the Oxford Group movement, and the Oxford Group people in Akron had been trying to get Bob Smith sober for almost a year and a half by the time Bill Wilson came out and actually helped him do that. So the meetings that they held were very much of the, uh, the, the Oxford group used to have what they called house parties. And so the, the Tuesday night meeting in Brooklyn and the Wednesday night meeting in Akron were very much um, Oxford group meetings. The ones, the, ones in, uh, the ones in Ohio were 50% of the people uh, at those meetings, at least 50% of those people weren't even drunks. They were Oxford group people. Whereas in New York, um, Bill Wilson uh, actually broke from the Oxford group in April or May of 1937. And past that point, all the meetings that were held in New York 
uh, going forward was were were alcoholics only, drunks only, and uh, and and once Wilson broke from the Oxford group, then the the style and the substance and the emphasis on the meetings in New York started to change. The meetings in Akron uh, continued to be Oxford group meetings. Uh, well into or right up until about December of 1939, you know, 10 months after the book was published, they were still having these meetings in Ohio that were really Oxford group meetings. And how, what were the beliefs and attitudes about alcoholics and alcoholism at the time? How, how was it different from today? Wow. Ellie, there's been tons of changes between then and now, and we continue to have changes of people trying to make sense out of that. And the fact of the matter is, after the Civil War, um, alcoholism was a huge problem then, as it is now. And uh, the temperance movement grew up, for instance, and, and really um, went on a, on, a, on a giant fight to uh, control people's drinking. And that culminated in the passage of the uh, Prohibition Amendment, so that from 1920 to 1933, there's no legal alcohol in the United States of America. The basic logic behind that was if people can't get their hands on alcohol, they won't drink and therefore they won't, we won't have all these drunken problems of, of people uh, not being able to hold jobs or not being able to be in relationships with wives and children. Um, the problem was that that was, that was the great solution for almost a century that was being pushed and it finally got tried uh, much to the dismay of the rest of the world, that there was no alcohol allowed legally in the United States of America. It was a total, complete failure. So in 1933, the great solutions that had been pursued for almost a century had crashed and burned and were never going to be tried again because they had been a complete failure. And people were scratching their head thinking, what, what can we be doing here? What can we be doing here? And in 1934, the very next year after Prohibition, Bill Wilson takes his last drink and gets sober and starts trying to figure out what is it that's keeping him sober and what can he tell people that will allow them to follow the same path that he's followed towards sobriety. And one element of that that he finds is that this idea that, okay, we just have to keep people away from alcohol. We have to, you know, if you have someone over to your house who's an alcoholic, well, don't have any liquor around or telling the alcoholic don't go anywhere where there is liquor. And, and he realizes that that's fundamentally wrong. Um, why and how does he realize that? And then what are the other elements that he realizes have made a difference for him and then for the people that he's working with? Like, what are the basic tenets? My understanding after all this time, spending all this time with this book and studying it carefully, my understanding of the basic tenets of Alcoholics Anonymous are two points. The first point is, Bill said in the book, if you're a real alcoholic, he used that phrase over and over again, if you're a real alcoholic, you have no defense against the first drink. Now, this is really interesting because most people who had dealt with the drink problem we're trying to get people to just be moderate drinkers, that once you started drinking, you should be able to control it. It's a willpower issue. It's a psychological, whatever it is, you should be able to stop drinking after three drinks, for instance. Wilson said, no, the problem is that if you're, if you're a real alcoholic, you have no defense against the first drink. So the problem was in the alcoholic's mind, even when he was sober, dropped dead sober and made promises to his wife and his children and his mother and his boss, he was never going to pick up a drink again. He was no booze in his body, but still he had no defense against the first drink. If you're a real alcoholic, no matter what you do sooner or later, 
according to Bill Wilson, you're going to pick up that first drink. And he credited that to what he called uh, a, a, a mental, a strange mental twist. At one point, he actually calls it in the book, plain insanity. What else can we call it? He says, but plain insanity, that knowing all the disastrous things are going to happen when I pick up a drink, I still pick up a drink. I pick up the drink because if you're a real alcoholic, you have no defense against the first drink. Sooner or later, you're going to pick it up. The second tenet, as I understand it from the book, is that, oh, but there is, in fact, something you can do to distance yourself from, from that first inevitable drink. If you have a vital spiritual experience, you can put that vital, experience, vital spiritual experience between you and the drink. And, and as long as you continue to enlarge your spiritual life, as long as you continue to grow along spiritual lines, then the chances of picking up a drink become more and more and more remote. So Wilson has these two basic premises. But the real alcoholic is, is powerless over the first drink. He's going to pick it up sooner or later, unless he has a vital spiritual experience to put in between him and that first drink. You also, in the book, you illuminate that struggle that Bill had and with other members of the groups, and, and also, I think, internally, as to whether to refer to that aspect as a religious element or a spiritual element. And those words also meant different things to Bill, because for, for Bill, spiritual meant God, a, a very particular God, in a very particular relationship yes. with God. So, so yes, how did, did that play out? Well, one of the things was Parkhurst, his, again, his right-hand man, who was pushing him to write this book, had very different ideas about what should go into the book. Hank was looking for a psychological book. Um, Hank was, I'm not quite sure what Hank's beliefs in gods were, but it, he was, he certainly wasn't a man who believed in the providential God, the Abrahamic God, the God that you can pray to and get direct relief from that Bill Wilson believed in. But so when Bill the first time Bill wrote this, uh, one of the chapters in the book is called There is a Solution. When he wrote that chapter in early June of 1938, when he talks about this vital uh, spiritual experience, it's not called that. It's called a vital religious experience. And, and, and in, as the months went by, Hank wore him down, got him to change the verbiage in these things to soften it so that it wasn't so explicitly religious. So the phrase higher power got introduced rather than in place of God in the second step of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and, and, and then later, the phrase, uh, God as we understand him, and in the book, that phrase, as we understand him, is printed in italics for emphasis, that God as we understand him was introduced. So that Wilson firmly believed in a providential God, and you needed, to get, you needed to find a God who you could pray to and get some help from. He was very, very, very clear about that. And the book is very clear about that. There's no other way to read the book than to, than to realize that that's what Bill Wilson is talking about. But, of course, over the years, Alcoholics Anonymous has changed uh, in many significant and uh, substantive ways. And one of the things is the, the expansion of this God as we understand him. Um, you know, early on, uh, one, of the, one of the early New York members, Jim Burwell, was an atheist, and, uh, and he started talking about group of drunks. It was G-O-D, group of drunks that was keeping him sober. Uh, since then, people, people have gotten a little creative with that. Uh, they talk about good orderly direction or the gift of desper desperation. 
Some people even talk about the great outdoors. So over the years, um, I, my understanding and talking to people is that AA has moved away from uh, a strict and necessarily formal belief in Abrahamic or providential God as being necessary to um, relief from alcoholism. But you still need a spiritual, a vital spiritual experience, vital being a key word, I think. And why do you think personally, you're, you're a scholar, you're a rare book dealer, um, you're interested in history, you wrote a um, fabulous work on, on Nietzsche, like why does the knowledge of the history of this worldwide movement matter? Why does it matter that people understand where it came from and how it got from one, um, and I mean zealot in the kindest, most positive way, um, zealot with with a group of, of drunks in his house to a worldwide movement that has millions of followers and, and who produced a book who has millions of readers and, and who has reframed um, a much more sympathetic and supportive approach to alcoholism in general. Like, why does the history matter? Well, I... I'm, I'm, I'm flabbergasted by the fact that all these documents that I found were even available. I mean, to be able to trace the evolution of the, uh, and the story of them trying to do things and, and saying, well, this works, so we're going to keep doing it, or that didn't. Well, Bill Wilson was the, was a, wasn't a dogmatist. He was a pragmatist. He was important. He was interested in what worked. But the problem is because Alcoholics Anonymous and that book have, sobered up millions and millions and there's 2 million people in Alcoholics Anonymous sobered today. And, and it's, it's 80 years since that book was published. I mean, how many millions of people have had their lives saved and bettered by the fact that AA uh, actually came into being when the book was published with the 12 step program in April of 1939. The problem, and, and, and I, I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had that kind of detail on, on, on the New Testament, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, on, on all the backstory on that, but it's way too far in the back. But this isn't that far in the back, and it's right there. I think, I think it's, it's a singular opportunity to explore the formation and the evolution and the growth of, of, of a great spiritual movement. The problem is that, that uh, the, 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 the kind of talk within AA is always, always a much more miraculous uh, divine intervention kind of thing. There's this wonderful quote I found from um, Dorothy Schneider, who was <clears throat> around very early in AA. She wasn't a drunk, but her husband was. And she says, she was interviewed by Bill Wilson. She says, the, talk, they, the people talk as though there was 100 men that were all went saintly and were taken straight up to heaven, and God just guided Bill's hand, and that Bill just sat there and let the words come through. Actually, it wasn't anything like that at all, she said. And as I say in my, my, my book after that quote in the frontispiece, no, it wasn't like anything like that at all. It's a much, much, much more human story than the kind of angelic gloss that's been put on it over the years by Bill Wilson and others. And I think, quite frankly, the humanness of this story makes it even more interesting makes it more fascinating, makes it more uh, important, and, and makes, it, makes it 
quite frankly, more miraculous. It does. We actually got to that point. It does. And, and, and two more uplifting and inspiring in the fact that this was not a linear trajectory and that the relationships incredibly strong and, um, and the, the, you know, something you sort of look at so differently today, um, even the the way that they corresponded with each other, the cordial letters that were sent back and forth, the level of respect and communication and the depth of communication and, and continuity of communication. And sort of, um, we're in this together and we're going forward together over the bumps and, and, you know, through the valleys and over the mountains. Yeah, and let's face it, there's, I mean, as you read the book, which you've clearly done, thank you very much, there's all these all these times where, where, you know, the future hung in the balance. It just, just, it's just, just an amazing uh, story how often that happens. I mean, Bill Wilson uh, travels early on. He travels out to Ohio, and he's, um, he's been sober five months, and he's, he's really thirsty, and he's in a hotel in Akron, Ohio, and he's pacing in the library. He's going in the bar. Is he going to make a phone call? Is he going in the bar? He's going to make a phone call. If Bill Wilson went in the bar that day and got a drink, AA never would have existed. And in Lois's diary in mid-1938, June of 1938, um, Bill and Lois obviously have a fight, and, 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 and Bill rushes out of the house. According to her diary, he rushed out of the house to go get a drink. But instead of that, he went over to his friend Hank Parker's house in New Jersey and, and, and didn't drink. I mean, if Bill Wilson had started drinking in June of 1938, no alcoholics anonymous. He was he was the man who made it happen. And if he wasn't there, the guys that were left were not going to be able to pull that together, in my opinion. There was nobody in that crowd with that kind of capability. And let's talk a little bit about Bill and, and Bill's and um, Lois's marriage because you know, she's she's dealing with a lot here with a house filled with uh, alcoholics and with Bill's um, the work that he's doing puts a, a strains on the relationship in a number of ways. What, what part does Lois play and what does their marriage look like? You know, I'm not really sure about that. Although, uh, and uh, again, a lot of times this story gets, gets glossed over into this, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, it was the best marriage of all times. I don't think that's, that's right of any marriage. You know, every marriage has its difficulties. Uh, there's a famous story that uh, when they were going to Oxford group meetings early on, uh, Bill was Bill was uh, was complaining to her that she was running late, and she uh, she took one of her shoes and threw it at him and said, "Damn your old meetings!" You know, um, they, I think that I, I think well, they he had a, leaves a her at times with with drunks that are hitting on her, and and she's having to nurse them, and she's having to like make sure they don't kill themselves. One person does kill themselves in the house when they're not there. She is not living a sort of typical, especially in the 1930s, conventional life. No, no, this this woman was, and she was she was carrying heavy duty water here. There's no doubt about it. There was almost always four and sometimes six drunks living in this brownstone that they had in, uh, in Brooklyn. And, and you're right. She had to cook for these guys. She had to clean up after them. She had to, she had to nurse them through hangovers. She had to take them to doctors because Bill was on the road traveling most of 1937 for business. Uh, and her diary is real clear about when he leaves and when he comes back and she writes him these letters while he's on the road, giving him the details of some of the crazy things that had happened in the house uh, in the past few days. Yeah. I mean, Lois was, Lois was getting it done. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, and I, I, God bless Lois Wilson. No doubt about it. 
Um, you, you talk about a little bit too the the difference, you know, which we also might forget um, the perspective on the differences, distinction I'll say between a female alcoholic and a, a male alcoholic, and it, it was certainly not not what it was today. Um, there was no hope for the women, um, you know, they were beyond beyond repair. Um, what I found to be so interesting and and just inspiring was like how bill continues to you know gets knocked off the horse and gets back on um and that the the original idea like he he was his determination was i am bringing this message to everyone in the world because that needs it and there are many of them and he wasn't set on exactly what that was going to look like and and he had ideas he wanted to hire missionaries he wanted to start hospitals he wanted to write a book um but he did not get locked into uh how it had to happen i mean he would get locked into it for a time but as soon as that didn't work he'd pick himself back up and grab onto something else. Um, was that something that was surprising to you as, as you did the research? No, no, I was, I, again, I'm a man of a vision. And I mean that very specifically, a man of vision is, is really, really driven. And Wilson was just so driven during this time frame. He was, he was overwhelmed by the fact that they had, developed what they called in those days a cure for alcoholism. And he just knew the, to, to the depths of his soul and from his own experience, the painful reality of, of being an active alcoholic. And he was just doing everything he possibly could to, um, to, to spread that message. And I think uh, it, it, it wasn't just Bill. Again, I'm back to Hank Parkhurst, who was, who was constantly, constantly on him. Uh, he was out there, Bill and Hank were out there trying to raise money, and when they couldn't raise money, they'd come back to the office, and, and Hank had come up with some new plan, and Bill had signed off on it, and they'd go off on the new plan. They'd try this, they'd try that. At one point, uh, you know, they're trying to get testimonials for their for their uh, newfound cure, and they end up uh, with the two most famous supposedly psychiatrists down in John Hopkins University, and uh, they go down and pitch them in Baltimore, and uh, and get some uh, some serious testimonials from those people. Yeah, and and they thought, well, now that we've got these testimonials, the uh, the philanthropists will start kicking in some money. But they didn't kick in the money. So then they decided, oh, well, then we need to do something else to get the money. And then we really need to get this book. If we get the book, we're going to sell millions of copies. That'll that'll fund all of these uh, efforts that we want to make to spread this thing uh, nationally. And and what do you think because of the the timing um and the attitudes towards alcoholism at the time made it so difficult for them to get um funding and to get uh, a solid base of of um donations to support well, so them much, yeah so much so, so much of so much of the money um was for temperance kind of uh, things in the past. And people had uh, the Rockefellers, uh, John D. Rockefeller Sr. had liberally funded things like that. Uh, but when John D. Rockefeller Jr., at the time the richest man in the world, was approached for money for Alcoholics Anonymous, he only gave them $5,000 and told them not to come back and ask for any more. I think part of the, the problem was that, that it, was, it was alcoholism was seen as a willpower thing. And, uh, and, and, and these guys were trying to help real down in the gutter, uh, alcoholics, people who were really 
bums on the street kind of thing. And, and it, it just, it just didn't have any of the cachet that uh, the earlier temperance and prohibition movements had had, which the, the temperance and prohibition movements were a back end thing. Let's, let's stop people from drinking. Whereas Alcoholics Anonymous was working for people who were drinking and who were drunks and who were, um, complete failures in life in many cases. And uh, there, there didn't seem to be any, any uh, cash. It really turned the people with money off. Aside from the uh, five grand that they got from John D. Rockefeller Jr., they, they never really raised any money to speak of at all. Uh, nobody was interested in giving money to... And these, gutters, you know, the Bowery drunks. Well, these guys are drunks too, right? In, in the minds of these philanthropists, you know, who are asking for help. You know, they're not in right. the most sort of top of society, uh, dependable in the, in the eyes of these, these people, men who, who are being asking them for money and donations and, and, and for this new, new plan. What was the treatment currently in the 1930s for alcoholism? They had a few of these hospitals where people would go and, and dry out. Um, but what was sort of the medical thinking around how what alcoholism it was, um, you know, other than a weakness, sort of what, what was the approach to treatment? Well, the, the drying out places, uh, Towns Hospital was a very, uh, a very she-she and expensive drying out, out spot in New York City in the 1920s and into the 1930s. It closed in the mid-50s. Um, they, they, they gave all sorts of different, they tried all different sorts of things there. I mean, in terms of, of medical treatments, uh, there was the famous Belladonna treatment that uh, Bill mentions in his story. Uh, I don't know much about exactly what was done with that. There's, there's been some good research done on that. And an excellent book actually written on Charlie Towns, the, the man who founded Towns Hospital. Uh, but um, there was also a, a heavy emphasis on, on a psychological approach. Uh, to uh, saving drunks from themselves. And that goes back to the Emanuel movement, which came out of Boston in the mid, uh, probably 1906, 1907. It was around for the next 25 years. Um, there was people who, who offered psychological uh, regimens uh, for getting around your alcohol problem. Uh, Hank Parkhurst was uh, one of the guys who was uh, a proponent of that, as that should have been the primary emphasis in the book. But um, in general, hope, drunks were considered pretty hopeless. And, and, and you're right, it's one of the problems that Bill and Hank had as they went to see these philanthropists in New York City was that uh, they were drunks. And, and they were trying to make an impression on these guys by uh, – telling them how bad they had been and how now successful they were, although neither of them really had very well-paying jobs on any level at all. So uh, um, the, as today, there's, there's, you know, there's many, many things, even today, that people recommend for um, a solution to a, a drunk's problem. How, how, can, how can he stop drinking or moderate his drinking? There are people who believe that, that alcoholics can just moderate. And, just, and, you know, there's cognitive, behavioral, I can't remember the, the acronyms for those things. There's all kinds of psychological approaches. There's, there's uh, an abuse approaches. You take an abuse so that anytime you drink alcohol, you're going to get violently ill. There's, 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 even today, we, we have this confusing plethora of solutions to the alcohol problem. Now, I don't think AA has ever 
ever claimed that they were the only solution to the alcohol problem. Um, but they have been they have been effective over the 80 years since that book was published in getting, as I said earlier, millions and millions and millions of people sober. If it works for those people, that's a good solution. If it doesn't work, then they got to try something else. What What did it do to Bill when Hank started drinking again on a personal level? How, how did he respond to that? Bill Wilson himself when he started drinking again? When when Hank started drinking again, um, how, how did that affect Bill and their relationship? Oh, Bill and Hank's yeah. relationship when Hank started when, drinking yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so when Hank started drinking again, you know, as you say, he was Bill's right-hand man. They were in this as a, a tight-knit team. Um, that might be a mixed metaphor, tight-knit team. Anyway, they were tight, and they were a team, and they were in this together. Um, so that must, I'm, I'm thinking, must have been pretty uh, ungrounding, um, to say the least, when, when Hank started drinking again. What did that look like as far as the development of their relationship? It was really painful for both of those men um, and, and very different from each side because one was sober and one was drinking. Uh, drinking certainly <clears throat> brings a new perspective to a drunk. Um, I, I don't really know how Bill even began to cope with that. He was so close to Hank and so dependent on him for so many things. Um, six months after the book's out, Hank's drinking and he never gets sober again. And, and, and the two of them start fighting. Um, Hank starts uh, claiming that uh, uh, Bill has gotten between him and Ruth Hawk, the woman he wanted to marry. Um, he gets Hank gets divorced while he's drinking um, and uh, never gets together with Ruth Hawk. Bill moves Ruth Hawk to New York City for the uh, the new offices. And while he does, he moves the furniture that they used in Newark, New Jersey at Hank's office. And they have this huge argument over the over the furniture that goes on for a couple of years. Um, they also both own stock in the company that they had set up to publish the book. And uh, he needed desperately to get the stock back from Hank. Uh, so they finally reached an agreement where both of them turned their stock back into uh, the Alcoholic Foundation and and got rid of that problem. But Hank never got over his, uh, his resentment uh, towards Bill Wilson. And he said some really mean and nasty things about him. In the years afterwards, uh, he even teamed up with uh, one of one of the most vocal anti Bill Wilson people in the early AA program was uh, Clarence Snyder out of Cleveland. And uh, Hank and Clarence got together; they actually became business partners. So they were they were always always uh, challenging what was going on in New York City, claiming that Bill Wilson was acting like the Pope of AA and and lining his pocket with a lot of money. And yet they tell him earlier that he sort of has to be in that position, right? That he can't take a job when he wants to take a job at the hospital and, and some other jobs he's offered. They, Hank says to him, no, no, you can't take those jobs. You know, you can't be a professional. You have to be sort of the, the pope of this and the, 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 um, the voice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they did. They kept him from taking a job at Towns Hospital. Charlie Towns offered him a really good lucrative position there at a time when Wilson had no money whatsoever and they wouldn't let him take that job. Uh, and then right after the book was published, two weeks after the book was published, uh, the house they were living in in Brooklyn was foreclosed on and they were homeless. And for the next two and a half years, they wandered from one AA couch to summer home to rented place 
for uh, for all that time, and and Bill was desperate to get a job so that he could he, he could become more secure and become have 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 a home for Lois. And and they literally wrote him. They literally got together. Their group got together and wrote a letter and said, Bill, you you can't take a job. We need you to be running this thing because without you, we don't know what the devil we're doing here. And they started taking up monthly collections to give him some money so that he would have some money and wouldn't have to take a job. Uh, Wilson was always... I was going to just say, I love when the Rockefellers say, we don't want to give you any money, that would ruin the movement. And <laughs> early on, and Bill and Hank are just like, what are you people, crazy? Yeah. Well, I, I, think, the, I think the Rockefellers were right. Mm-hmm. I, I think those people understood how, how contaminating money can be. You know, it wasn't just John D. Rockefeller Jr. There was four of his very close associates who met with uh, the AA people in uh, late December and December of 1937. And, and their first reaction when they were asked for money was, you know, money's going to gonna ruin this thing. You, you don't want to, you don't want to inject money into this thing. Now, of course, they're talking to people who, who have never really had money or been exposed to a lot of money. Uh, but these are, these were four Rockefeller guys who knew exactly how powerful and contaminating money could be. And uh, I think uh, we, AA owes a great debt of gratitude to the, uh, their foresight in relation to that and their, their adamant uh, approach to we are, we are just, you guys got to figure out how you're going to survive here, but we're not going to give you the cash and make it easy for you. And the idea that hospitals would do the same thing, that by somehow creating a business around it, you would lose it because you created all of these extraneous problems. Yeah, Bill talked about a string of hospitals. Now you got to realize that. So this this is 1937, 1938. Uh, the big the big chains of, of of businesses had just just started to come out in in the United States. The A and P supermarkets, for instance, you know these big chains. And, and Bill's vision was there was going to be a chain of AA hospitals around the country where people would come and get sober, and they'd get medical treatment and spiritual treatment, and they would they would uh, they would be relieved of their alcoholism. Um, and, but, but sure, I, going into business, the, the people in Akron were absolutely crazy about that idea. I mean, they thought it was nuts because, you know, any kind of business, once you get into trouble, uh, how, how are you going to, how are you going to get yourself out of a, a bankruptcy proceeding? You know, when, when you're supposed to be doing uh, a first century Christian approach to your fellow suffering alcoholic, uh, it, it would have been, would have been a, would have been a disaster. Actually, there was a hospital in New York uh, that was uh, supported by AA members in uh, in the 1940s called Knickerbocker Hospital. Um, as far as I know, nobody's done any real research on that. I would love, I would love somebody to do it. I'm 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 done with this aspect <laughs> of my research life. Draw the line but, at 11 years. I saw the, uh, the the typed notes. The the you know the the secretary's report for meetings in in uh, Rye, New York, which is just outside of New York. City and, and and they were talking about we need some people to go down to Knickerbocker Hospital and to, and to and to and they needed I don't know four or five drunks they had a whole floor down there uh, Dr Silkworth the guy who was around when Bill Wilson first got sober at Towns actually worked there so there was in fact an AA hospital in New York City for again I don't know I haven't done the research I think somewhere between five and ten years uh, I think I think I think I think that'd be a fascinating story to look into I'd like to know more about that myself. 
And and so how does Hank, uh, how does, excuse me, how does Bill come to terms with Hank's slip in relationship to the process and, and to the book and to the, um, the work that they've done with the 12 steps? Um, is, is that part of also um, a successful plan that, yes, there are going to be people who slip and there are going to be people that this doesn't work for. Is that already part of it? Or does he have to, does he have to um, figure out how that fits in after the book's published? I think he really needed to figure out how that fits in after the book was published. And, and, but you know, the, the man who brought the message, the original message to Bill Wilson, Eddie Thatcher, uh, was a guy who just couldn't stay sober, slipped and slide all through his life. And, uh, and, and Wilson was always perplexed with, with his friend, Abby and, and why he couldn't stay sober. And I'm sure the same, uh, agonizing self-examination, uh, and examination of the issues and the problems, uh, were Wilson had those same, same things in relation to Hank Parkhurst after he drank. But, um, clearly the, the, uh, the process doesn't work for everybody. If it worked for everybody, we'd, we'd all be in better shape today, socially and individually. But uh, the process doesn't work for everybody. So the other big choice that they make, um, some saw it as a mistake at the time, a big one, and others saw it as the only path forward. Uh, it's an area that you know well, which is publishing big books. Um, they decide not to go with a traditional publishing house and publish the book themselves. Um, in hindsight, with the, the research you've done, did they make the right decision? Yes, it was a brilliant move. Again, that was Parkhurst. Parkhurst was the guy who continually insisted that they publish the book themselves. And when they were offered, Harper and Brothers actually offered them a contract. And, uh, and, and Hank, Hank just, just argued uh, violently against that. He really, really thought they needed to keep control of, the, uh, of their own text. Um, it, 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 it's kind of hard to think about, you know, if the book had been published by Harper's, as opposed to a privately published book, um, would Harper's then have been in control of, of uh, changes that could have been made to the book later? I, I mean, I don't really know. I don't know enough about the publishing business how that works. Tell you the truth, I've only had two books. So, um, but it's it's uh, the fact that uh, that they didn't in fact publish it itself was was critical and central. Um, now, the first um, almost five thousand copies, four thousand six hundred and fifty copies, were printed in April of thirty nine. Uh, took uh, almost two years to sell those. Uh, but once um, there was an article that appeared in, in the Saturday Evening Post, which with Reader's Digest was the most widely read magazine in the country, and magazines were very, very important media uh, delivery systems in the 1930s. Um, there was an article written by Jack Alexander, a very favorable article on AA in, uh, I think, March of 1941, that just, just now AA had grown uh, in the in the, in the two-year interval, but but it just exploded after that, so that they did 16 printings of the first edition uh, before the uh, mid-50s when they put out a second edition. Do you think as a visionary that, that um, towards the end of his life, was Bill satisfied, do you believe, with what he'd accomplished? I think he was very aware of what he had accomplished. Bill Wilson's a Wilson's a very, very interesting and, and complicated man. And, uh, there's a wonderful uh, documentary called Bill W. Uh, that was came out in 2012, I think. It was made by my friends 
Kevin Hamlin and uh, Dan Carasino. Uh, and it covers uh, Wilson's life from beginning to end. It does an excellent job. It's a warts and all documentary. Uh, and uh, it's a human story. And I, I, I really appreciate the fact that they did all the research and, and, and got that film together and released. Um, but yeah, I think Wilson was very, very clear about how successful he had been. But he was, he was worried in the last decade of his life. He died in 1971, the last decade of his life, and in, actually in the 50s also. He was worried about the people who couldn't seem to get it. And, and he looked for other solutions. Uh, at one point uh, in the 50s, uh, he thought, uh, this is before the 1960s, he thought that uh, LSD might be the, uh, the solution to the spiritual experience needed to get sober. And uh, under medical supervision, he, he experimented with that. And uh, I find all of that very, very interesting. I have a friend who's done research on that, and I've helped him do some of the research in the archives. So I've gotten to read some of the interesting materials around that. Um, Wilson, Wilson was always a seeker. He was always a seeker. He wasn't a guy who thought he had found it, you know, and, and he was going to pound you over the head until you admitted that he was right. He was always looking for uh, more information, more answers, more ways of doing this thing because he was so interested and so committed to uh, saving people's lives. And um, William Shaberg, as a dedicated scholar, after 11 years of work on this, are you satisfied? <laughs> I think so. I really am. You know, I, I put up a, a little website for this uh, this book. Uh, it's, by the way, www.writingthebigbook.com. And uh, and as I was doing that, I, I, as it was coming together, uh, you know, there's a table of contents and a sample chapter, and there's all the re- early pre-reader reviews in there. And I thought, you know, good job, William. Yeah, I'm I'm pleased, and most especially. My wife, the lady Sarah, is very pleased. Now, she's read the book probably 100 or 150 times. I mean, I give her, she's my editor. I give her my primary editor, my first line editor. I give her stuff and she reads it and reads it and reads it. And uh, she's very pleased with it. So that pleases me because she is a very, very tough critic. Well, I am also very pleased. I think all your readers will be very pleased. And I'm serious about the Netflix series. <laughs> I don't know if you've talked to them yet, but that's got to be next on your list. I love hearing you say that. You know, a couple of the people who read the book early on said that it read like a detective novel. And I, I was just charmed and very happy to hear that because one of the things I talk about is that I, I considered my job as being a detective in the archive. You know, you get all these little little jigsaw pieces, you know, and they you got to fit them together into a credible story. And, uh, and, and that's what I really tried to do. But you know what? I, I think with the stops and starts and the the heart-stopping moments that occur in this story. I'd never thought about a net. I thought about a movie, but not a Netflix series, but I think you might be right. I should be talking to Netflix. Yep, yep, that's next on on the list. All right, well, thank you so, so much uh, for joining us, and, and thanks again for the book. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bye.